Okay. Um, I can change microphones if I need to. Jason, just let me know. Um, we talked about the. We looked at the kingdom of God and what that what that means. We said the kingdom of God is the it's the rule or the reign of God. It's not a geographic area. It's not a political thing. It's everywhere God's will is being done. So if you forgave somebody who wronged you this week, that's an expression of the kingdom of God. You could say the kingdom of God came into that place where you chose to forgive. And we said Jesus, what he expects from us, the message was repent. That's turn from sin everywhere you miss the mark and turn towards Jesus and believe. That's trust or shape your life around this message. So the, what that looks like practically is following Jesus. To repent and believe is to follow. And that's the expected response. That's the invitation and the demand that Jesus made to the first disciples. It's the same one that he makes uh, issues to us today. This morning what I'm going to look at are two, ex- two examples of the kingdom coming. What does it look like when the kingdom comes into our World. What does it look like when God's will is done among us? So we're going to start with Mark one twenty one. They, that's Jesus, uh, Simon, who is Peter, Andrew, James, and John, went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil or an unclean spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus, sternly come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about Jesus spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. First thing, there's... Two different things we want to talk about. The first one is this idea of Jesus casting out demons. Now, if you're a visitor here this morning, not our normal thing that we taught, and you don't have to, we're not going to try to cast anything out of you, none of that. There's no snakes in the closet. There's definitely a weird factor to this whole idea of demonic spirits, and that's creepy, and maybe it's easy for us to say, well, you know, those guys lived in 10 A.D., in the Middle East, and we live in 2010 in Cobb County, and we know that stuff isn't real, or it's only in developing nations. Or It's easy for us to dismiss. Let me just say a couple of things about that. One, throughout Jesus' ministry, you'll, this is not an isolated incident. Four times in Mark, which is the shortest gospel, he casts a demon out of someone, or an unclean spirit. It's the same thing. You'll see it in Matthew, you see it in Mark, you see it in Luke, you see it in John. And you see it in Acts, which is the the establishment of the church. If you read through church history, throughout church history, exorcisms or delivering people from demons has always been a part of the church. This is not something that is uh, a a relic from a, a primitive time that we've kind of moved past. One of the things about following Jesus is we have to recognize he's the smartest guy who ever lived. He knows he understands life and reality better than anyone else. And if he says, listen, there's a strong man, and that's Satan. And in order for me to rob his house, that is to rescue the people who are under his influence, I have to bind him. That's what Jesus said. Then that's reality for us. And that's the, so for all of us, that's the picture. Wherever you are on the continuum of 
I get it or not, not so much. My encouragement to you, read the Gospels, see what Jesus says, look at the world. If you believe God is good and loving and kind and just, how do you explain that? There has to be some, something else is at work other than a good and kind and loving and just God unless he's completely incompetent. None of that makes sense out there. To me, it's a pretty easy conclusion to say, you know what, there's another force, there's another being, not a force, he's a being at work who's intent on destroying everything that God has created. And so that's, to me, it's not a big stretch. I don't know if it's a stretch for you. If it is, again, I'd encourage you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See what Jesus says about those things. If it's still hanging you up, come talk to me. It's real. This whole idea of us having an enemy, Satan, John 10.10, that's his job description. I've come to steal and kill and destroy. That's what he is about. He's looking to steal, to kill, and destroy you and the people that you love. And he's looking to um, mess up everything that God is trying to do in our city, in your home, in your office, in our country, and in our world. That's, he is bent on destruction. And he has an army of demons who work for him. He's kind of a general, and he's got all these guys that work for him. And again, as you read through the New Testament, it's pretty hard to escape that worldview. So that's that. Um, in terms of... This idea of casting out a demon as an expression of the kingdom of God, what you have is basically Jesus and Satan are kind of squaring off. It's, you know, my dad can beat up your dad kind of thing. That's what this is. When, when Jesus casts a demon out of this guy, he's saying, I'm stronger than this demon. I get to tell it where to go. And so throughout the Gospels, every time he does that, what he's saying to everyone who's looking is, my kingdom wins. The kingdom of light wins. The kingdom of God wins. And the kingdom of darkness loses. Every time he does that, he is asserting, I am superior to Satan. I'm stronger. I'm better. I win when we go head to head. So that's why this is an expression of the kingdom coming because it's when the kingdom of God comes, it drives out the kingdom of darkness. It's not an issue of Star Wars where there's a good and there's an evil and we don't know which way Luke is going to go and there's this tug back and It's not that at all. The kingdom of light wins, period. The kingdom of God wins, period. They're not equal kingdoms that are vying for our allegiance. It's a man and a mosquito. The mosquito's annoying. The man's always going to win. And that's where we stand on this side of the resurrection. So that's kind of that look. For us, I think what's important is to realize how the enemy tries to influence us. This idea of being possessed, just that movie didn't do anybody any good, The Exorcist. Just kind of get that picture out of your head. Nothing's going to spin around. All of that, it's not helpful. In the New Testament, the word that's translated possessed, it's best understood as demonized, which doesn't sound any better than being possessed, I will admit. But... What it means is to come under the influence of a demon. To be under the influence of a demon is to be under the influence of Satan. It doesn't matter to try to split those hairs. And for all of us, that's a possibility because the the devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. And the way he does that is he's looking for influence in your life and in the life of the people that you care about. He does that in several ways. One of the ways he looks to gain influence is he just looks for opportunities, open doors. Ephesians 4 says that we shouldn't let the sun go down on our anger. It gives the devil a foothold. It gives him an opportunity to work in our life. 
1 Peter 5.8 describes the devil as a lion who's prowling around, roaring, looking for someone to devour. The picture in those two verses is he takes advantage of the opportunities that are presented to him. He's not lazy. He's not apathetic. This isn't something he does on nights and weekends. He's fully committed to stealing and killing and to destroying. And we need to be aware of the opportunities that we are giving to him. Two different ways. There's multiple. The two that I think maybe are the most common for us. One is from behavior choices that we make. Habitual sin. That's a sin. You know it's a sin and you keep doing it anyway. That's a habitual sinful behavior. If you're involved in that, that's an open door to the enemy. You're saying, come on in here. You're doing something that you know is wrong and you continue to deliberately do that. You're basically, you're rejecting God every time you commit that sin and you're saying yes to the enemy. We've talked before about that picture. If you've ever been fishing, what it looks like when you, the fish grabs on the hook and you set it. You've got him. It doesn't matter how far he runs. You can let him run for hours because you're the one in control. You reel him in when you're ready. Habitual sin, that's allowing the enemy to set a hook in your heart. And he'll let you run all day long because he knows he can reel you in at any time. Normally, these sinful behaviors are sexual in nature, everything under that umbrella. Sexual sin, it's, there's a spiritual component, a physical component, and an emotional component, and we're usually ashamed of it, so we don't tell anybody. So there's no light brought to the situation. We're, we're, we're never healed. It's something we think we can take care of on our own. If you've ever been involved in those things, you realize you can't take care of it on your own. And by the time you realize that, you're so ashamed of what you've done, you don't want to tell anybody. So that these behavioral things, that's an open door to the enemy. Another one, um, fear. Anything that's, that's based in fear. The easy pinata to hit would be horror movies. Horror movies whose sole design is to make you scared, I would say. Probably steer away from that stuff. Where does fear come from? It's not Jesus. And if you're constantly putting yourself under the influence of something that's designed to elicit fear in you, what you're saying to the, you're opening yourself up to the enemy and saying, come make me scared. God does not scare people. He doesn't do that. And so when you're opening yourself up saying, scare me, scare me, scare me, You're asking the enemy to work in your life, really to work in your mind. If you've ever struggled with fear, you know how that works. It is a nasty ditch to fall into. And a lot, I'm not blaming, it's just that's an opening. Another would be, and I don't think y'all do this, but just in case I'm going to throw it out there, um, trying to figure out the future any way other than asking the Lord. Psychics, mediums, people that talk to dead people, what All of that stuff is stay away. They're either con men or they're folks who are tapped in to some source of knowledge that is not Jesus. So again, when you're putting yourself under the authority of those people and you're saying to them, you tell me what's happening, you're submitting yourself to them and ultimately their sources of knowledge, either they're straight lying and you don't, why would you want to listen to them? Or... They're tapped into this whole realm of spiritual knowledge that is not coming from Jesus. So then where is it coming from? There's only two choices. Why would you want to submit? That's an opening to the enemy. You're saying to him, direct my life. Tell me what's going to happen in the future. Why? Don't. 
He wants to steal and kill and destroy. So why in the world would you trust anything he ever told you? So don't, if, if you're involved in those things, just quit. It's not, I'm not one of those demon under every rock guys. If you have children, keep them out of that stuff. It's just not helpful. Nobody needs a Ouija board for Christmas. Just stay away from all of that stuff. It's, it's ultimately, it's, not, it's just not good. The sort, whether, again, what, no matter what we want to say, what, again, whether it's ultimately the sources behind those things, just, it's an invitation to the devil to speak to you, to get involved in your life, and you don't need to give him any invitations to do that. So one of the ways he exerts influence is through, just takes advantage of the opportunities that presented. Another thing is deception. When I think about this, kind of these opportunities, a lot of that stuff is classic temptation, trying to get us to behave in a certain way. When it comes to deception, I think of our minds. It has to do with who we are in Christ, and it has to do with the character of God. I think in those two areas, those are the area where, where the enemy really tries to deceive us. I think it's in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says that the um, devil masquerades as an angel of light. Kind of the popular cartoon picture is horns and a pitchfork and a pointy tail. That doesn't fool anybody. If anybody tries to pass you monopoly money, you know it's not real. Counterfeits that are effective are effective because they're very close to the real thing. That's this idea of masquerading as an angel of light. It's as close as he can get to the real thing. Just off a little. It's 99% true. There's just enough truth to make us say, oh yeah, this is possible, this is plausible, this could be something the Lord is saying. Not quite though. Just enough error to pull us aside again. His goal is to steal and kill and destroy. And so he uses the best bait possible. One of the classics is false humility. Humility is good and it's biblical. And yes, we don't want to think too highly of ourselves. But for some of you here, what you've done is you've swung way the other way. The enemy has lied to you. He's made you think you're less that you're a servant and you're not a son. You have to ride in the back of the bus. God is, you're forgiven technically. You're going to get to heaven. But you're not restored in God's sight. You're broken permanently. Those type of things that have, a, they, there's some truth there, but it's not fully true. Those are the kind of things that he deceives us with to get us to doubt who we are in Christ and to get us to doubt who God is in general. Second Corinthians 2.11 says, Satan tries to outwit us or take advantage of us through trickery and treachery with this scheme. Second Timothy 2.26 says we need to escape the devil's trap. And the idea behind that word escape is to come to your senses or to sober up. The picture there is the enemy's kind of drugged us and led us astray. And we need to, Paul shaking Timothy, wake up. You need to see what's going on in your life so you can avoid this trap. So there's opportunities, there's deception. Another way is it's opposition. It's, it's uh, not subtle. He just comes at you full out in the face. Ephesians 6.10 says we struggle with the devil. That word struggle, it's hand-to-hand combat. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says the devil stopped us from coming to you. And the picture behind that word stopped is if you're running a race and somebody cuts you off. Or if you're trying to drive down a road, somebody's blown the bridge out so you can't cross it. That's the idea behind that word stopped. And you really see that when it comes to doing God's work. So this opportunities really has to do with behavior. The deception really has to do with your thought life. 
And this idea of opposition really has to do with accomplishing God's purposes in your life. Those categories are all fuzzy and get mixed together, but in general, that's a way that you can think about it. The enemy looks for things, tries to tempt us behaviorally to move in a certain direction that opens the door. He tries to deceive us in our mind who we are in Christ and who God is. And he tries just to, when those things don't work, he just gets in the way when we're trying to be obedient, when we're trying to do the things God has called us to do. And y'all have experienced that. We just feel like it's frustration and you're trying, you're trying to move forward and there's just roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. It very well could be that he's, he's, he's trying to stop you like he tried to stop Paul. Regardless of any of those things, our response is always the same. And that's what's great. You don't have to spend a bunch of time trying to figure out, well, where is this coming from? And now is this an opportunity or is this deception? It doesn't matter. He's trying to get influence in your life, and when he does, your response is always the same. Same thing Jesus did. You take authority. Don't spend a bunch of time on him. You just take authority and say, shut up. Get out of my life. That's it. You don't have to spend a bunch of, again, this is not weeks and weeks of, God, rescue me. It's not the force, good and evil. It's a man and a mosquito. Look at what Jesus did. He doesn't spend a lot of time dealing with the demon. Get out of here. Just... Get out of here. And we stand in that same authority. This is Colossians 2. We looked at this this summer. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. What that verse means is all of the fullness of God lives in Jesus. And as we identify with Jesus through faith, then that, all of that fullness lives in us as well. So everything that was in Jesus is in us. And Jesus has defeated every ruler and every authority. When you see those kind of words in the New Testament, always talking about these evil spiritual powers, thrones, authorities, rulers, principalities, doesn't matter what they are other than they're wicked and they're opposed to God. And what we see in Colossians 2 is Jesus is the head over all of those things. He's the boss. He runs the show. Skip down to verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. That means he's already won. They've already been defeated. And so when the enemy is trying to influence you, he's doing it as a defeated foe. You're on the winning team if you're in Christ. And so you don't have to spend a bunch of time wrestling with him and struggling with him and being afraid of him and being intimidated. Just tell him to shut up and to get out of your face, to get out of your kid's head, to get out of your... Wherever it is that you feel like he's... He's trying to get a foothold. Wherever you feel like he's trying to deceive you, if you feel like he's setting up roadblocks that are keeping you from moving forward, tell him to stop. You have, it's not because of who you are. It's because of who you are in Christ. Jesus has already beaten him. He knows that. The winner is already determined, and we need to stand in the authority that we've been given as children of God. He'll bluster and bluff. He'll do all of that stuff. It's like a bully. Punch him back one time, and he'll leave. It's not, again, this is not, it's not difficult. You don't need to call somebody else to do this for you. Call, and we'll help, but you don't need to. You have the authority as a son or daughter of God to tell him to get out of your life, to get out of your head, to get out of your relationships, to leave your children alone, all of that because of who you are in Christ and what Jesus has done on the cross. Verse 29, 
As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. The second area, one is kind of this area with the demonic, the enemy trying to get influence in our life. We take authority in that. The second area where you see the kingdom coming is when it comes to sickness. Jesus healed people. Again, this is not an isolated incident. If you read through Mark, he healed this woman with a fever. He heals a guy with leprosy, a paralytic, a couple of blind people, someone who's deaf and mute, a woman who's been bleeding for 18 years, all of them. And again, you read Acts, they heal people. You read throughout church history. Healings have always been a part of the ministry of the church. We have wonderful medical breakthroughs. In my opinion, there's absolutely nothing wrong with using that. I don't think if you pray and ask God to heal you, it means you can't take an Advil. I don't, I don't get that distinction that some people make. If you have some personal conviction about that, that's okay. But I don't, and I don't see biblically how that's an issue. But whatever. Healing is its a part of the kingdom of God. When God's kingdom comes, people are made better physically. Every area of life. But they're made better physically. Sickness was not part of God's original design. Read Genesis 1 and 2. There was never supposed to be sickness in the world. It entered into the world when Adam and Eve sinned. It brought uh, death and decay and destruction to human life and to our environment, the world as a whole. If you read Revelation 21 and 22, there's no more sickness. We live in this time where we get sick and where we die, but that was never part of God's original intention. Most of you get that. That's not a big deal. Intellectually, you're like, yes, God can heal. The issue for us is Willie and what happens when he doesn't. That's where we really start struggling. It's not an issue of can God heal. Like if I said, can God heal cancer? Most of you would say, absolutely. If I said, well, let's go to the cancer ward and start praying, you'd say, you know, I'm really busy this afternoon. And I would do the same thing. That's where the, the, the rub for us is not theoretically, can he? It's practically, will he? And most of us have seen instances where he has not. And so it throws us for a loop. And we start wondering... What, what's happening there, and does God really want to heal, and how do I know if he wants to heal this person, or if he doesn't want to heal this person, or, you know, and so then we start, when we pray, we start adding in a whole bunch of, if it's your wills, and if you got time, and if, you know, all this stuff. This is what I want to say, I want to make it simple. God's will is to heal people, plain and simple. That's it. You don't need to ask. He wants to heal people. Will everybody be healed? Absolutely not, because we live in a time in history where people die. Until Jesus comes back, people are going to die. And usually, the way people die is because their body breaks down, which means they got sick. So there's going to be a point where everyone in this room, barring trauma, we're going to get sick, and we're going to die. And we can have everybody in the world praying for us to be physically healed. And it's not, we're not going to be. We're going to die. And then we're going to get a new body and we're never going to be sick again. But the fact that that is true doesn't mean that we should be shy or sissies when it comes to praying for people to be healed all along the way. God will decide. Whichever one leads to death, that's, on, that's his thing. That's not my thing to determine. My thing is to say, God, I know 
that you're a God who heals and that you love this person and so I'm going to ask you to heal them. If you don't, that's on you, not on me. People get sick for lots of different reasons. Most of the time, it's just because we live in a fallen world. Environmentally, there's stuff out there and we're susceptible to it. You don't want, that's it. You reap what you sow. You smoke two packs a day, you're probably going to get lung cancer. That's how it is. You don't wash your hands, you might get the flu. You, sometimes sickness is tied to demonic activity. Luke 13, this woman who was bleeding for 13 years, Jesus healed her on the Sabbath, and everybody got upset. You're doing work on the Sabbath. And he says, how can I not set this woman free who's been bound by Satan for 18 long years? I think that's a small percentage, but there are people who that's, that's the thing for them. But for us, it doesn't matter which of those causes. It doesn't matter if it's environmental, just because we live in a fallen world. It doesn't matter if people reap what they sow. It doesn't matter if it's because of demonic activity. Our response is always the same. Let's pray for God to heal them. If you read through the New Testament, Jesus never says, figure out why someone is sick first. And then if it fits in these categories, then you can ask me to heal them. Otherwise, just leave them alone. Now, there is another category that's different. In 1 Corinthians 11... Um, the church, the Christians in Corinth, were not taking communion well. They were rude. They were selfish. They were not considering the poor among them. And what Paul says to them, which is really weird, he says, because of the way you're acting when it comes to taking communion, a lot of you have gotten sick and some of you have died. And so what he's done is he's made a connection and said, God is judging you physically for what you're doing spiritually because of the way you're acting around communion. God is... He is judging you with sickness and with death. Now, if that, that is a, again, I think that's a small percentage, and all you have to do is ask. And God will tell you the reason he would judge is to cause us to repent, so he's not going to keep it a secret. If you want to know if your migraines are the result of the judgment of God, just say, God, are you doing this to get my attention? And he's either going to say yes or no in the way that you're going to understand. You don't have to spend two years suffering with them trying to figure out God, is this from you or not? If he wants you to repent, he wants you to repent quickly, and he's going to let you know. Otherwise, you check that off the list, and then the cause doesn't matter. Let's ask God to fix it. And even if it is as a result of judgment, repent, and then let's ask God to fix it. Our response is always the same. James 5.14, is anyone among you sick? Call the elders of the church, ask them to anoint you with oil and to pray for you. The idea of anointing with oil, there's spiritual connotations there. That's kind of a consecration, setting yourself apart. So that is saying, God, heal me. And at the same time, during this time period, people used oil for medical reasons. So to me, that's permission, 100%. Let's do both. You pray for my headaches to go away, and I'm going to go take some leave. Unless they both work. I don't think it matters. God heals us through medicine. He's given us these wonderful bodies that can heal themselves. And he heals us instantaneously and miraculously. I don't care. The point is, ask. Prayer is asking God to get involved. And then he gets to decide how he wants to get involved. If you've got a broken leg and he just wants to fix it, absolutely. If you, or a cast. doesn't matter as long as your leg gets fixed, right? That's, that's it for us. We overcomplicate matters. And then there's this whole issue of faith and do I have enough faith and not enough faith and who doesn't have enough faith. It doesn't matter. God said if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, that's the smallest thing Jesus said that. That's the smallest thing he had available to show them. 
So what he's saying there really is the amount of your faith is pretty much irrelevant. All of you have faith the size of a mustard seed. Or you wouldn't be following Jesus at all. That's not the issue. We need to focus on the fact that God wants to heal people because he loves them and because he's strong. And that's what we need to go for. Will everybody we pray for be healed? Absolutely not. But more people will than won't if we pray. Will, you, will it happen the first time? Maybe, maybe not. If it doesn't, does it mean anything wrong with you? No, it doesn't mean anything is wrong with you. Come back the next week. Let us pray for you again. There's no shame in that. It's not a big deal at all. There's, we'll read about it later in Mark. There's one time Jesus prayed for somebody who was blind. Can you see yet? Yeah, people look like trees. He prays for them again. Jesus did it twice. Not a big deal for us to have to pray for somebody more than one time. What we want to do is take all of the pressure off. Because for most of us, the, the idea that God might not keeps us from ever asking him to at all. Some of us are afraid because it's, we can't control the outcomes. Well, I'm going to pray for you to be healed, but it might not work. And that's going to look bad on me. Some of you are afraid you're better people than me. You're afraid because it might look bad on God. I'm going to ask God to heal you, and he might not, and that looks bad on him. He'll handle his own reputation. We don't have to worry about that. And you already got rid of yours when you became a Christian anyway, so you don't have to worry about that either. So, ask and see what he does. We live in this weird time. I think this is probably the the thing for us. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. I think that's it for us. When we start start thinking about results, and we look at his results, and his track record looks pretty much perfect. And our track record, not so perfect. And so again, it causes all these internal battles for us, and it's emotional, and it's theological, and it's, it's all of this stuff. Cut all of that. Jesus expects us to get involved. This is Mark 6, or 12, and 6, 12 and 13. Excuse me. They, that's the disciples, that's us, went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. That's the assignment for us. He expects us to get involved. But we live in this weird time where it doesn't always work. God's not always going to heal people the way we want to see them healed. D-Day. What was that? June 6, 1944. So that's when the Allied powers landed on the beach of Normandy. And most historians will look back and say that was it. That was the decisive victory in World War II. Everything after that was basically a mop-up operation. That's when the war was won. It wasn't 11 months later in May of 1945 that the Nazis officially surrendered. That was VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. And then it wasn't until August of 45 that the Japanese surrendered. So you have this gap between this decisive victory in June of 44 and final surrender in May of 1945. In that 11-month period, that's where we live. We live in between this decisive victory when Jesus rose from the dead and when he's going to come back again and Satan will be destroyed forever. So we live in between defeat and destruction of the enemy. He's, de- he's defeated, but he's not fully destroyed. He still exercises some power. And so during this 11 months, over 700,000 people were wounded in Allied forces. 200,000, over 200,000 were killed. 
there were still casualties, even though the war, for all intents and purposes, had been won back here. Because the enemy had not surrendered, was still fighting, there were still going to be some people who got wounded and some who would be killed. That's the 11-month time period that we live in. It's just lasted for 2,000 years. We live in between this decisive defeat, the first Easter, where, where Jesus said, where Jesus triumphed over all the powers and principalities, everything that opposes you in your life. Jesus is already whipped. But those things have not been fully destroyed yet. And so they still exercise some authority. And so not everybody gets better. And all of us are going to die. And usually that's going to come through sickness. But rather than letting the fact that there will be casualties keep us from engaging, let's let the fact that there will be people saved cause us to engage. Let's let the fact that there will be some who are healed, there will be people who are delivered, there will be people who are... Let's let that motivate us. Rather than looking at what might not happen and say, well, I'm just not going to get involved at all. Let's get involved because of what might happen. Let's pray. We're going to close. Um, we're going to do uh, a couple of things. Communion, if you're helping with that, if you come forward. Why don't you all open your eyes? Don't pray yet. We'll pray in a minute. Let me explain this to you. So we're going to do communion. I need you to see what we're doing. We'll have two stations for communion right here. So if you're on this side or this side, there'll be somebody. The way we take communion here at Stonebridge, break off a piece of bread and then tip, dip it in the cup and then eat it. And then what we're going to have is we're going to have um, a couple of men over here and a couple of women over here. If you want prayer for healing, we want you to come forward. We'll have a little thing of oil. It's not magic. It didn't come from the Jordan River. It's just probably Crisco that somebody's bottled and selling it for $5 a pop for people like us. There's nothing special about it. But we're going to put it on your head, not in any funky design that means anything. We're just going to smear it on your head, and then we're going to pray for you. Regular, simple prayers of faith. So if you're sick, if you're a woman, we'd like you to go over here and let the women pray for you. If you're a man, we'd like you to come over here and let uh, the men pray for you. You can just line up down the wall if, um, if you need to wait. It's not a big deal. And then we're going to worship. So kind of the build there is communion, communicates to us. This is, this is solid. This is what's happened. Jesus has died and, 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 and risen again. And so we can, we have confidence. There's benefits that come to us through his life, death, and resurrection. Then we're going to move to healing. Because of what he's done, we can ask him to heal us. And then we're going to move into worship, which basically says regardless of the results, I'm going to give God his due because he's God and he deserves it. So um, Bo's going to sing this first song. He's just going to sing over us, and then the band's going to come back and do a full um, worship set. You guys can stand up. I'll pray, and then we'll uh, do the rest of this. Jesus, we do thank you for your death and we thank you for your resurrection and we thank you for all that it means and honestly, we grab on to 2% of that. So my prayer for us today is that we would all, we get a little more. Those of us who get, yes, you've forgiven me, that we would get today and you fully restored me. I don't have to believe those lies anymore that I'm a second class person. Those that get that, they would, we would get, I don't have to live in fear. God, people who are sick, Lord, that you would touch them today and make them well. Not so we look great. 
but because your kingdom is coming. And when your kingdom comes, there are results. And we want to experience those results. And so my prayer for anyone who's sick here today, that you would touch their bodies and make them well. And that for any who are being harassed or tormented by the enemy, that they would be set free and delivered from that. And that you would get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can come when you're ready.